Hello, and welcome to Shared Space, a podcast about the power of architecture and design to make us healthier, happier, and more connected. I'm your host, Erin Peavy, and I'm so glad that you're here with us. My guest today is Colin Ellard. He is a trained psychologist focusing on the impacts of the built environment on human health and well-being, and he researches, writes, speaks, and consults all about the built world at numerous different scales. Um, Really, I was introduced to his work through a um, book that he recently wrote that was called Places of the Heart, The Psychogeography of Everyday Life. He also has a few other books, uh, a ton of different articles, TED Talks. You should definitely check him out on his website. Um, Wonderful guy. I'm really excited about sharing our interview with you. You'll see that there's two parts to the interview, starting first with um, understanding some of his background. I love hearing how he came to the field of environmental psychology and um, working with architects and understanding how humans engage um, with the spaces where we live and work and play. And, um, we talk a little bit about how COVID is changing the ways that we interact um, and what our environments look like and um, some of the understandings of how we were naturally um, sort of evolved to connect with one another. Then in our second part, we look at some of the surprising components of design related to pro-social behavior and some of, some of the underlying mechanisms. We also dig into some of the studies that he's done um, examining the difference between what we think we want versus what we actually want in, in spaces um, such as our homes and how, how they can be designed um, specifically for connection. Um, And then he leaves us with some wonderful takeaways. So I really hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. So also, how do you pronounce your last name? Ellard? Ellard. 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 Yes, perfect. Just like that. My kids don't know how to say it. Now you do. (laughs) It drives me crazy. Ellard. Colin Ellard. Yeah. Okay. So, Colin Ellard, I am thrilled that you'll be joining us today, and um, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but I just was captivated by your book and by your research and found myself having to continually replay different parts um, because of just how eloquently I think it tapped into a lot of the truths in um, environmental psychology and in design research. So, Super excited to have you here today. Um, I was wondering if you could kick us off with a little bit about your background and your path to the work that you do today. Sure. And I thought perhaps you could say a little bit about when your earliest memory of wanting to work in this field was. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Erin, for that, uh, for those kind words. And yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I think it, I think it's funny to to reflect on your own past and and we're we're constantly inventing and reinventing the narratives of who we are and how we came to be that way mm-hmm. um and for me one of the odd things was that it wasn't until um fairly fairly recently um that i i realized that there was this 
connection between myself and my father. Um, my mm. father wasn't a designer, but he was in the building trades. Mm. Um, he was a he was a quantity surveyor, mm -hmm. um, and I had this recollection of when I was I don't remember exactly how old I was, but it would have been prior to the age of seven. Uh, because I came to Canada at, at seven years of age. Um, mm -hmm. I remembered uh, going to visit Stonehenge with him. We lived in England. And at that time, now now if you go to Stonehenge, there are, there are fences and restaurants and um, crowds. But back then it was it was just you and the and the stones. Um, mm -hmm. and you could just walk right up to them. And I remember standing there, holding his hand and, and looking up at these structures. And I can't really remember exactly what he said, but he was trying to convey the wonder of how these massive pieces of, of rock were moved into place at that time, thousands of years ago. And uh, so looking back on that now, I, I think that it's, you know, there's a possibility that that was the initial spark for me thinking about not only a little bit about how things are built, which I'm not an architect, so I don't know very much about that really. Um, but also the effects that they might have on on people. So I think you know, and, and one kind of story I tell myself about myself is that everything maybe began then, but with a lot of a lot of detours along the way. In in terms of my my uh, my research life and the stuff that I do now, there was a. Um, a really sharp inflection point that took place around uh, uh, 2007, I think it was, that I had a sabbatical. Mm -hmm. And at that time I was doing, um, I thought interesting research, but interesting to a very small community of, of specialized stakeholders uh, looking at particular problems in uh, the behavior of animals, but with a focus on how animals used and understood space for solving the problems of life, like not being captured by predators and finding uh, building nests and finding food and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so I took a, <clears throat> I took a sabbatical with the explicit intention of sort of spending, because academics are, this is one of the things that makes this a really lucky kind of career is that we have these amazing opportunities uh, called sabbaticals um, where I, I could actually take the luxury of, of spending a year essentially navel-gazing, trying to figure out what it was that <laughs> I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So, you know, a lot of people go to, to other uh, laboratories. They, they go spend time with collaborators, uh, get access to infrastructure that they don't have at their home university. Mm -hmm. So instead of that, I decided to go live in a little fishing village in Nova Scotia. Oh gosh, uh, for for the year where there was basically nothing but but me uh, my family um, a ramshackle old rental that that we found on the beach and lots of coastline and I just spent a lot of time walking and thinking and writing yeah. and at some point in that that year I had this epiphany that was sort of late coming for me which was that if I really was interested in understanding how animals uh, used space and especially how animals might craft space, thinking of things like uh, nests and hives and some burrows. Mm -hmm. um, the obvious candidate was people. <laughs> I, I never really thought, astonishingly enough to me now, 
I'd never really thought about the possibility of looking at things like architecture and urban design yeah. in that way as as an object of, of psychology that we might use to learn things about how people's minds were, were put together. And so I came back from, so I wrote, I wrote a book in part about that while I was on that sabbatical. And then I came back and um, uh, found someone at the School of Architecture in Waterloo. And I, I sent him an email and said, can I come talk to you? And, um, and, and what started as a plan for a, a one hour sort of coffee date, and <laughs> we ended up spending the whole day together. And oh my he, God. he just said, he said, I've, I've been waiting for my entire career for someone like you to come along ah, um, because no, nobody here knows how to do this. And, and, yeah. you know, there was psychology in the architecture school, yeah. um, but it, it was not, it was not cognitive science. It wasn't experimental psychology, really. It was mm-hmm. you know, Jungian stuff and, um, which is, you know, there's a place for that, but there's yeah. lots of other content as well that should be examined. So, so that was the start. So, so we applied for funding. We we were shocked uh, that we actually got some, and uh, and and off we went. I remember around the same time, another one of my colleagues who did research, uh, animal research similar to mine. I remember telling him about these ideas that I had. This was before I approached the the Thomas Seabon, the architect who um, mm-hmm. who I befriended, and he he listened very seriously to my my long exegesis about what i uh, thought was interesting and and then he he looked down into his beer and he said that's that's all very interesting colin but you wouldn't you wouldn't actually consider trying to apply for funding for something like this would you as if it was just so completely outrageous and i was i was so deflated i just said no of course not it's just a just an idle fancy but it turns out to have been a good move. It's uh, yeah. it's been a really happy turn of events for me, and it's uh, been a been a fascinating journey so far. I love that. Um, so okay, so in your book, um, your second book, the Places of the Heart, you talk about the biological preconditioning to live in groups of no more than one hundred closely knit, mostly kin, who we all know well. And in our urban life, that's not always, you know, natural for us. Um, when you think about modern living, where do you see the positive parallels to this, and where do you feel like the modern day equivalent might be? That's a that's a great question, and it's a it's a hard one to to answer. So the 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 a bit more of the background of of what I meant in in my book when I talked about that was I was kind of using as a springboard the the, the work of uh, the primatologist Robin Dunbar, who who talks about this this upper upper limit on on the number of of other individuals whom we can really um, track and and understand and be acquainted with, and and based based on some some brain science and some studies of of other primates other than human beings, he came up with this number of roughly a hundred hundred and twenty, and I think it's I think it's credible. I think that. Um, um, my argument would be that that first of all that that that's probably um, the the big problem in urban design is finding mm-hmm. some way to accommodate uh, that 
limitation in mm-hmm. uh, what we can cope with both cognitively and, and emotionally in and but at the same time have all of the advantages that we want from from yeah. living in 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 big dense populations of course there are advantages to that right mm-hmm. um, so how how do we how do we do that I mean I think that probably um, one of the places to look would be um, at the 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 places where we spend most of our time and these days of course um with the pandemic where we're all spending much much more of our time and that is um in in or near our our homes Mm -hmm. and so i think you know the the i can think of uh i think the the good examples have um without being specific about particular places the, the, the principle is to find ways to design environments where we, although we may not know um, that 100 to 120 people very well, we might, but we don't need mm-hmm. to, but where we have some level of familiarity with the faces that we see on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Um, so it, it kind of connects up with um, some of the, uh, the, the discussion that came out of... Um, Oscar Newman's work on defensible space, for example, and also mm-hmm. some of Jane Jacobs thinking as well that oh, yeah. um, you can, there are, there are some relatively simple de- design tweaks that might even have to do with where you put the entryways um, into, a, a, say, a, a multi-unit residence that mm-hmm. will have an impact on, on who you see on a daily basis and your feeling of familiarity and and in in my lab sometimes we talk about psychological ownership so there are things that can make mm-hmm. you feel that you have ownership and stewardship of a of a space mm-hmm. uh and, th- and things that will will not make you feel that way so i think those kinds of variables in design um are probably uh some of the most important ones for 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 building those kind of smaller smaller scale um units of of people within larger environments so could you give us a few examples like just when you think of a few features that build and a few features that sort of take away from psychological ownership what does that look like uh well i would say i would say um again maybe going back to some of some of newman's findings because i think in this respect he was he was um he was probably right uh Mm -hmm. that the I mentioned the arrangement of doorways. So so a, a bad example might be um, think of something like the the generic high rise development where mm-hmm. there's there's one or a couple of elevators um, and and everybody goes in through the same lobby mm-hmm. space and everybody goes up the same elevator and chances are you're not going to see the same people uh, very often and those sh- those shared spaces because you don't really see the people that you share them with you don't feel ownership of them like think of something like the lobby in a high-rise people who live in high-rises typically don't think of that lobby space as theirs that space Mm -hmm. is the responsibility of management so it's not it's not part of their domain so i think you know arrangement of doorways but also also things like view sheds so what Mm -hmm. you can see from uh from your your uh your 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 property makes makes a big difference, and and again, often in kind of generic high rise arrangements, the the answer to that is 
is not very much, just just the hallway. Mm-hmm. Um, translating that to, you know, um, something like um, uh, uh, suburban residential design, even there, I mean, there, there are good examples of, of uh, reasonably well-designed uh, suburbs and, and suburbs that aren't well-designed. We talk about, you know, the, do- the dominance of, of cars and, and mm-hmm. how that's not a good thing. But along with the dominance of cars comes a lot of other stuff that's, that's really psychologically unfriendly, unsustainable. So things like, you know, one of the things that I've always thought is incredibly important in neighborhoods is, is the, uh, just the simple width of the street. So yes, the, yeah. the, the, I think the acid test is, is can you have a conversation with your neighbor across your street? Yeah. Yes. And, if, and if you can't, then the street's too wide or that. has too many cars on it. Yeah. Um, and, and here in Canada, I, I've often used when I've been looking for a place to live the the street hockey test, you know, do, do people play hockey <laughs> on the street? If, if they do, it's a good street. If it's too busy or too wide or too much like a highway, then that's not a good, good neighborhood. But again, the reason, the reason that all of that works is because it, it makes it, uh, more likely that that neighbors will, even if, even if you don't become good friends with with your neighbors mm-hmm. or the people in your building or or whatever, just seeing those faces and knowing that yes. they belong in your clan, so to speak, can yes uh, can make a di- big difference to your psychological state. I think, and and I think you know, especially in times of, um, you know, natural disaster or you know let's say pandemic for instance which we're all experiencing right now like the ability to borrow something from your neighbor or like know know that you can count on them for small things in an emergency i mean i think what you just mentioned is something i found in my own life like it just allows you to start to rely on them in little ways um which it makes a big difference um so yeah. i love i love how you described it yeah, um, I think I think you're right. I think that's you know that's been really speaking of the pandemic. That's been yeah. something that has really interested me. That that I've had uh, lots of hours uh, <laughs> sitting on my front porch to uh, yeah. to observe this. Is is that yeah. the uh, the the level of of activity on front porches yeah. and, and and front gardens in in my neighborhood has been extraordinary it's it's uh mm-hmm. it's sometimes you know while while people are you know not being perfect but being reasonably good about social distancing mm-hmm. it's it's often kind of like a party atmosphere um yeah all the, all the children are out all mm-hmm. of the the adults are out people are are making friends like never before and i think yes. you know why did it take a pandemic for this to happen <laughs> you know we were all here the same people before all of this Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess it's because we weren't we weren't home nearly as much. I guess that's a big part of the answer. Yeah, and I almost wonder whether some of that is actually the unexpected benefit of work from home that maybe could continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I agree. I think that it and it uh, it it likely will. I think that you know one of we're we're learning. Um, but both things about what makes working from home difficult, the things that we miss mm-hmm. uh, and the things, the things that are, are surprisingly difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but we're also uh, learning some of the positives as well. And, and I think some of them do, you're right, have to do with those feelings of, of place attachment that, that the, at least the luck, the lucky ones among us um, yeah. get, get to enjoy. I mean, li- life is not all milk and honey oh, for, for everyone, for sure. Like it is, I'm so incredibly privileged to be able to live in a neighborhood where mm-hmm. I have these kinds of affordances for neighborhood connection. Again, if I'm, if I'm living in a, in a, a, a big monolith on the outskirts of a city, because uh, mm-hmm. I don't have other choices, then yeah. I don't. I don't know how that's going. I'm hoping to, hoping to learn more about that. I've got some some research underway at the moment. That oh, might... can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I can't. I can't tell to, you very but, much because yeah. we have we have no findings yet. But sure. but yeah. um, we we've we've been really interested in uh, a, a couple of things. Uh, of course, given given some of the research that I do, one of the obvious things is people's use of green spaces and park spaces and, mm-hmm. and how that, that might've, might've shifted, um, through this. And then the other thing has to do with, uh, social, social distancing, because even prior to all of this, um, we've been very interested in my lab in, uh, thing, things like sidewalk dynamics, you know, when you walk yeah. past someone, um, on, on the sidewalk, um, and as we're finding out, most sidewalks in cities are not wide enough. Um, mm-hmm. There are all kinds of interesting power dynamics involving oh, um, gender and, and race and other f- and physical size. Um, mm-hmm. So we're, tr- we're trying to look at that um, uh, through the lens of how everything has changed now with, the, you know, the stakes are different now with social yeah. distancing. So, so that as well. So, so we're, we are... Um, trying to pay a fine eye to um, the uh, the demographic variable of where, where you live, you know, whether you live in a house, an apartment, a room, or, or what have mm-hmm. you, to see how that that might influence. And, and that's, of course, going to be correlated with um, all kinds of other factors as well, including, including income. Because um, that's, yeah. you know, that's, this is no epiphany, I'm sure, but yeah. that's the, the, the big um the the elephant in the room with a with a lot of uh the, the findings is is that the people who are are suffering um are of course the people who lack means the people who yeah. are uh marginalized economically and that has implications for where they live and it has implications mm-hmm. for the density of where they live and as i said the affordances to be able to you know do the kinds of things that i can do step out onto the the front porch and, and the mm-hmm. wave to Ben across the street. Um, uh, a lot of people just don't, don't have that. So that, yeah. you know, the, the, the equity concerns of, of the pandemic is something that, that interests us a lot. This is one, you know, one small study that we've been able to do. We had, because, yeah. you know, with, with a lot of, I know everybody seems to be doing research on the pandemic, which is, which is great, including mm-hmm. psychological factors, but, everybody really had to pounce quickly and we knew it because the situation just changes every day and it's different everywhere. Yeah. So, yeah, but it's, we're trying to, to find things to do that both engage with our main research agenda and that, and that might at some level be helpful to somebody. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's wonderful because I think, you know, so much of that feels like when people talk about the research around that topic area, it feels at least 30 years old 
or more. Um, And so about some of those inequities in the high rise housing um, for, you know, what is now the projects and the ideas that kind of came behind those originally and how those were seen as like gifts and and how (laughs) how uh, the the truth of it has been anything but, you know. Um, So that's really important. I'm so happy to hear that. Um, Look look forward to hearing those results um i'll, I'll keep you posted we're, we're yeah. getting raw numbers next week we're quite excited so um we'll be working pretty hard and fast to turn them into something yeah thanks okay so rolling into um i kind of just wanted to talk to you about um everything changing with covid um and the stay-at-home orders um, and I was wondering if this has changed the way that we see space for connection, and if so, how? I mean, it's possible that you know part of that you've just answered, but um, are there additional pieces that you think are important? I think I think probably the most the most profound impact for 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 me and for the people that I talk to, and for based based on the the other uh, content that I that I know about that's, that's arising from this is, is that we are recognizing the, uh, the, the limitations of online connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, we're, we're all, well, those, those knowledge workers are, are, um, finding ways to, to carry on, um, y- using, uh, the array of online tools that we have and they're and they're pretty good i mean uh zoom uh, other than you know some some of the concerns that we've heard about is a pretty good platform and and a lot of the other ones are as well and 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 we were using them before the pandemic but i think what's happened is that is that people have kind of been confronted with the fact that trying to lead your whole interpersonal life based on these remote video connections just does not does not do it it's um, yes. it's, it's a stopgap, but not, not a replacement. Um, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, one of the things that I've read about over and over and over again is, um, this, this, it seems like more or less universal experience that, um, online meetings, uh, online video meetings are mm-hmm. really taxing. Yes. Um, they're, they're much more, <laughs> you know, if I have to spend an hour online with, with a student or, or a colleague, um, I find that it's much more exhausting than, than spending an hour yes. sitting face to face with them, um, yes. in a room. And, and from what I've read, you know, people are talking about the fact, well, it's, it's because, you know, sometimes the connection is not good. Sometimes it's because mm. of the lag. And I don't, I don't think that the, the, the most important reason for, um, for, for that, the, the, t- the taxingness, I'm not sure if that's a word, but um the, the difficulty of of that kind of connection is mm-hmm. just the just the simple awareness that it's disembodied i think you know yeah although it's not being uh described in exactly that way it's about embodiment it's about mm-hmm. our implicit understanding that there's something um there, there's something about you and i being in the, the same physical place together mm-hmm. that just knowing that we are changes everything um, yeah. I think you know there's there's more to it than that, and and yeah. things like the lag and um, 
uh, and and the way that we focus attention on the screen probably contributes as well. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's it's just you know, I find myself sometimes with with these online meetings, I just I lean closer and closer to the to the screen as mm-hmm. if I you know I would like to leap through it and just be there <laughs> because yeah. I know that I'm I'm missing something really really vital. So I think that yeah. you know. I think coming out of this, and I think this will probably go on for a long time, maybe even forever. Mm-hmm. I think we'll have renewed appreciation for the mm-hmm. for the preciousness of of being being together um, in yeah. a space. It'll be a it'll be a prized, uh, privileged resource rather than just a kind of ho hum expectation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel I, I resonate with all of that. Um, it just brings up so much, uh, you know, kind of so many more other questions. Like there was a part of the book that talked about, um, kind of how online we feel like there's a million eyes on us. Um, and, and I, and how that's different from how we were originally sort of programmed to be. Um, and, and I wonder that same thing, which is, you know, the ability that we're not able to actually look into somebody's eyes. Like we, we know that the person's trying or well, we we assume that the person's probably probably yeah. trying. They could actually be checking email, um, but it just doesn't. It's almost like if they could look into our eyes and we could look into theirs simultaneously. But the it seems like the mechanics of Zoom and of computers sort of make that impossible. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there is something to that. I think you know one one of the things that I've I've noticed. A couple of times recently in conversations with people online is that is that some people for reasons that escape me mm-hmm. are changing their setup i was talking to a, a colleague of mine a couple of days ago who had mm-hmm. their setup arranged in such a way that their their screen was was off to off to one side of their camera so they had presumably a detached camera and so mm-hmm. while i was speaking to them i was looking at the side of their head <laughs> <laughs> And so unnatural. <laughs> I had another conversation with a family member who did the same thing. And I thought, this is just really irritating me. Like, yeah. why aren't you, why aren't you paying attention to what I'm saying? Um, and uh, yeah, so I think, I think the eye contact part is, is part of it. And you're, you're right. Um, that it's, it's hard to, it's hard to pull that off. So, you know, mm-hmm. being, being mindful of that when I really want to make sure that, that, um, I've got someone's attention. I, I, I look into the little red dot of my camera <laughs> rather than looking at their face, but I, I don't yeah. even know if, you know, people are so exquisitely <laughs> tuned to, to eye contact that they probably don't even notice. Probably I know that's the myself. thing we we've evolved over centuries to be tuned in this way yeah. and not to be tuned for text or for email or for the, like, and it's just like, it's so hard to, yeah turn that off or reinterpret it when it's so automatic. Yeah. Um, So maybe that's a good segue um, to uh, one of one of the other things um, that you share in your book that I thought was so fascinating because it, it was so um, kind of hidden and unnoticed and yet seemed to have such a large impact um, was the study about how pro-social behaviors maybe different in rooms with jagged art rather than abstract art. And I found this study fascinating and I would just love to know a little bit more about it and the implications you see for how we design. 
Sure. I think, I think that, um, there have been over, over the years, uh, a, a number of clues, uh, about this suggesting that, that there's something, um, I- intrinsically rewarding about, about being surrounded by curvatures as opposed to, mm-hmm. to sharp edges. And I, I remember in, in, when I talked about this in the book, I, I related some some kind of everyday examples that had to do with people's responses to uh to different styles of architecture for example um people mm-hmm. have really beaten up on some of uh daniel Liebeskin's work um mm-hmm. and there's one very well known um at least in canada and probably everywhere well-known example of that in toronto um a an addition that was put on to a kind of a classically designed old 19th century building um mm-hmm. which was designed to look like a kind of a crystal and people had a, a a visceral and negative response to this when it was first put in uh put in. i think now i think people are just kind of kind of used to it and grumble about it but not in the way that they did at the time yeah, um, i feel like I, I remember you talking about people like crossing the street to not have yeah. to be next to it yeah that's I mean, yeah, it's it's. I think it's 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 anxiety provoking. I think it still is um, yeah. a little bit. So the 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 laboratory stuff, and there's there's all there's old stuff too. Like there's um, um, a study. It's probably over a hundred years old now, mm-hmm. where uh, the researcher, somebody named Poffenberger, who did a study where he just presented people with different shapes of squiggles and and just abstract designs and showed again that people uh, preferred things that had uh, gently sloping curvatures. The mm-hmm. study that that I described in a little bit more detail in the book was, was as you said, one in which people were um, assigned um, to play a kind of cooperative game. Um, so we, we have all kinds of, of uh, games um that can be interpreted in all kinds of ways all kinds of games in psychology that we play um mm-hmm. but but a lot of them have to do with kind of economic decisions where you can make choices to either share um share resources among a, a number of people or to take everything for yourself so you can mm-hmm. you can uh behave selfishly or you can um behave altruistically um mm-hmm. in for example divvying up a small amount of money yeah. Um, and if everybody behaves altruistically all the time, then then over the course of time, of course, on average, everybody does well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the finding in this study was was that how altruistically people behaved in the setting depended on uh, the artifacts that were placed on the walls. And when the walls contained uh, jagged, angular features, then people were more inclined to behave selfishly. Than if they were surrounded with um, gently curving kinds of kinds of designs, yeah. um, and, and I don't I don't really know how far you know how far to take that. I mean, there 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 is a, a long tradition of research showing that that we engage with uh, curvature. Um, I have a, um, a a good friend, a neuroesthetician, um, who who works down the road and from me in Toronto. Um, who has shown differences in brain activation um, among people being presented with with curvature versus versus angles, mm-hmm. uh, and and so there's even some some reasonable neural evidence to suggest that 
uh, those sharp angles provoke provoke anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I don't, I don't think that that enough of the the basic work has has been done for us to really get a sense of the size of some of these effects. I mean, that that mm-hmm. experiment that I described in the book was a was a one off and important, mm-hmm. but uh, it's yeah. something that that deserves repeating. Yeah, it deserves replication. Uh, deserves an effort to to generalize in a in a number of different settings. Mm-hmm. And I think you know sometimes I think that's that's one of the the, the the holes in in this whole field is that is that we we haven't done nearly enough of the the basic groundwork to understand how important um, those kinds of variables like like angularity um, mm-hmm. are in uh, in designs interior or or exterior. There are all these tantalizing clues that it's important, but we don't know how important. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Shared Space. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to subscribe wherever you're listening and head on over to Apple to give us a review. It really helps to spread the word and we really appreciate it. I hope that your day is filled with honest emotion, kindness, and connection. Thanks so much and take care.